Well, many of you have heard of the ministry of Voice of the Martyrs. It was founded in 1967, quote, to raise awareness about the many thousands of Christians annually who are killed, tortured, imprisoned, or harassed for their beliefs. What you may not know is about the man who founded it. Richard Wormbrand was a Romanian pastor who in 1944, when the Soviet Union took over the country and made it communist, was imprisoned for his faith. The crime? Preaching the Word of God. And it was a crime that carried with it a heavy sentence, for he would spend the next 14 years in jail. And we're not talking about some sort of city jail here. We're talking about three years of it being in solitary confinement in a cell 12 feet below the ground, no windows, no lights. It's enough to drive a man crazy. In fact, he recounts that in order to not go insane, he exercised his mind by taking each day and composing a sermon and delivering it that evening. He writes, My whole night, he would stay awake all night, he said, My whole night I began by meditating on the Word of God. I meditated so much that I arrived to actually see the scenes by which the Bible talks about. Every night I would pray for the countries of the world and for the churches and for the prisoners in the communist countries. Sometimes I would be handcuffed to the back. We could not move our hands. The human body has many necessities. But who can tie a soul? The communists have killed many Christians. Millions. They have tried to kill us. How stupid. They can only kill bodies. We are not bodies. We are spirit, and the spirit cannot be killed. To die for Christ, loving Christ, means to go to glory, means to go to Christ. Can you imagine? This is not something out of the Middle Ages or the Reformation. Richard didn't die until 2001. Sometimes by faith, Christians are victorious, as we saw in the previous passage. Undergoing tough times, yet they were able to, what? Shut the mouths of lions, put foreign armies to flight, do great feats. But you know, sometimes they're victorious by simply not quitting in the face of torture or death. We may not see it that way, but God does. They are equally successful. In fact, I would say even more so. Our preacher is about to land the plane today, you might say, on chapter 11, on this hall of faith, where we have seen man after man do great things because he believed. He had assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Those promises were so clear in his mind that even though he would never see them, even though she would never realize them, 
They were as good as done because God's word never changes and he cannot lie. And so they stood faithful. And the preacher wants to remind these Jewish Christians of their faithful forefathers. Remember the story of Hebrews. You have this little church, most likely in Rome, probably a house church, that is undergoing persecution. They're being mocked. Many have had their property stolen. Their family and friends from the Jewish quarter want them to come home. Leave that Jewish Messiah. At least downgrade Him and come back and be part of the Old Covenant. Embrace again Judaism. And they're tempted. It says that they have quit holding fast. They've let go so that they might evade some of the tension and persecution from their former family and friends. But there's also other persecution on the horizon that we know about. For if this was written around A.D. 64, we know that Nero is emperor. Tough times are ahead. And maybe if they could just stick their fingers in their ears, maybe if they could not be, have you heard this before, such serious Christians, maybe people will just leave them alone. And the preacher, after giving ten chapters of wonderful doctrine, he says, now it's time for the flesh and blood examples. Now it's time to show you and remind you of the great men and women of the past who have stood in the face of death and trusted God's Word. Don't turn back. Draw near. Hold fast. You remember that illustration we used when we started? Hold fast. The, the sailors who would tattoo it on their knuckles. Hold fast. Hold fast to the anchor of your soul. And I was tracking with him in chapter 11. I loved hearing about, you know, Abraham and, and, and Isaac and, and all these faithful guys and Samson, feats of strength, Jephthah, Samuel. But now he has to end on this, and I'm not so excited about this. I mean, torture? Sword? Is this something we really need today? None of us have ever endured persecution. Oh, maybe a little mocking. Maybe your friends have laughed at you a little bit. But, but never persecution. Why don't we save this? Why don't we save this until we really need it? Can we take a vote? The problem is, is that if we save it until we really need it, we won't be able to use it. You see, we have to prepare. Faith doesn't become strong in the moment. It's years and years of God shaping it and nurturing it. And if you're visiting with us today, let's make clear, faith is a gift of God. We are not saved by our works, but that God drew you by His Word, if you're a believer, and granted you the gift of faith and repentance. Faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Salvation then is turning from your sin and self-worship and saying, I want to be a follower of Christ. I'm trusting that He paid my penalty on the cross. And that all God asks is that we bow the knee to Christ. We place our faith and trust in Him. But here's the good news. The same faith that God gives at salvation is the faith that will carry us through Yes, even persecution. 
And let's be honest, what we're experiencing here in this grand experiment we call the United States is an anomaly throughout church history. The concept of freedom to worship, freedom of speech, a quote-unquote Christian nation or a nation founded on Christian principles. No, it's an anomaly. The normative expectation of a Christian to follow Christ is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. And if they hated Him, they'll hate us. And if they persecuted Him, they will persecute His followers. That's the norm. The question is, how do we remain faithful? And it's a fair question because this church is, frankly, not being faithful in the moment. And the preacher wants to help them. And so he's going to end this chapter on examples with some of the toughest illustrations of where faith is needed the most. Would you pray with me and we'll look at the text together? Gracious Father, we, we need you desperately. We need your word to do a work in our hearts that we cannot do. We cannot bootstrap it on our own. We cannot just be gutsy about things, toughen up. No, we need the faith. The faith that you gave us, that saves us, we need you to cultivate and strengthen that faith through the instrumentality of your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that in that day when we are facing tough times, and maybe even in that day when we are being called to deny Christ, we will stand firm. Like Richard Wormbrand, that we would say, do your best. You can kill the body, but you cannot kill the soul. And by your grace, you preserved him. And by your grace, you strengthened his faith. And through his adversity, you encouraged millions and millions of Christians. May our lives be used in like manner. Strengthen our faith to carry us through, but also strengthen our faith that we might encourage the saints, to stay the course, to draw near, and to hold fast to the very anchor of our soul. Father, this is a tough message, but it is one we need. It is one we desperately need. So I pray that I would cut it straight this morning, Lord. That I would deliver it with confidence in you and not in myself. Lord, I pray that we would realize there's not a one of us here that even has the remote capacity to do this. But as believers, we can rest in the confidence that you will do it through us. That grace is the power of God to save a man. It is the power of God to take us to the very end, to have us persevere no matter what. And so, Father, as we embark upon this sermon, we pray that by Your grace and through Your gift of faith, that You would give us the strength to not quit. We're going to say it in those simple terms. Help us to not quit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, as we get going this morning, let me make a couple of notes by way of introduction. And I would encourage you to write in your Bibles because it really helps to make the connection. Look back at verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 11. We know this verse well, but I want to point out something. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. Now look all the way down at verse 39. And all these, meaning all these examples, all these illustrations, having what? Gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. It's called a top and a tail or an inclusio. And the author is wrapping this box set of faithful character sketches. He's putting a nice bow on it, but he's reminding us something. This is not just something that is good for Christians to do. This is a determinant of the authenticity of our faith. That means you can't say, oh, this is really good if you're, if you're like a, 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 a varsity Christian. If you're a pro-Christian, this is something you'll do. You'll be faithful no matter what. But hey, for the rest of us, because we know we're not saved by works, then we don't have to be faithful. No, 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 no. You misunderstand it understand the doctrine of salvation. The faith that God gives us, if it's genuine, will persevere to the end. Let me say that again. Genuine faith perseveres to the end. If it does not, it wasn't genuine faith. You didn't lose your salvation. You never really had it. And immediately, people start to throw up the red flags, the penalty flags of, that's not fair. You're adding works to salvation. No, I'm not. I'm reading the Bible. Don't lower the gift that God has given His children. God does not give the kind of faith that falls away. That's why they're called apostates, apisteo, without faith. It's not that they had faith and lost it. It's that the faith was not genuine. That's the book of James. So all these having gained approval. Now we've seen this throughout the chapter. Look at verse 4. Same word, but different translation. Chapter 11, verse 4b, obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Verse 5, obtained the witness that before being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Same word all four times. The word is martyreo. Martyreo. Sounds like what? Mar her. Martyr. You're like, what? Well, martyr is a witness. It's one who testifies as to the truth. It came to mean over time a Christian who did, uh, testified would not renounce their testimony and therefore was killed. But its original understanding is simply it's one who testifies. So when we hear this phrase, gained approval, they persevered to the end, they gained approval by their faith, what they're saying is God testifies to the veracity of their faith. God is saying this faith is real. Look at their life. We can't see into a man's heart, but look at their life. It is real. MacArthur explains it this way. Uh, the word means they were testified to or had witness given about them. The men of old gained approval literally because God testified about them. 
He divinely authenticates our faith. He puts his stamp of authenticity on it. How do we know this? What do you hear when you die? Well done. Say it with me. Good and faithful servant. Genuine. Genuine. So keep that idea in mind as we bring all this together. Let me show you one other thing. Look back at verse 13. After hearing about Abel and Enoch and and Noah and Abraham, verse 13, all of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance. Now look down at verse 39. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They died not receiving what was promised. They did not receive what was promised. Let me give you one more and we'll bring it together. Verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. Remember the promise was land, seed, and blessing. They died without seeing the promise of the land. But they died and God promised a better country. Now look down at verse 35. Women received back to their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. You say, well, that's unique, Pastor. That's great observation, but what does it all mean? Well, as we get going here, it means about three things. It means faith gains God's approval when it doesn't quit. He testifies to the veracity of our faith. Secondly, genuine faith often dies not seeing the promises. Not even seeing how their life worked out. But they're completely assured of God's Word. And whatever it costs in this life, God provides better promises. A better resurrection. And watch this verse 40. God has provided something better for us. Now He's writing to this little Hebrew church. He's trying to convince them not to go back to Judaism. And he says, God has provided something better for Christians. As great as these Old Testament saints were, as faithful as they were, We have it better. And that's going to come out here in the text. No matter how bad it gets, don't quit. And so the preacher takes these last six verses before going on, and he's going to give us a range of what we as Christians might expect in this life with regards to persecution. We don't get to choose. He's going to go from easy to really, really hard. But he's going to say, here's what you can expect, and here is the common response of genuine faith. Four points if you're taking notes. Number one, suffering that is reversed. Suffering that is reversed. Number two, suffering that is short. Number three, suffering that is long. 
And number four, surety amid suffering. Let's take the first one. Suffering that is reversed. Look at verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection. What's so interesting about this particular text is that even without names, these original uh, Jewish Christians that were reading this, they knew exactly who the preacher was talking about. It's like, okay, some of you old-timers there, remember the old game show, Name That Tune? All right? This is Name That Tune for the ancient Near East. He gives you just a couple of hints. You're like, I know who he's talking about, of course. And you like know the rest of the words to the whole song. These Jewish Christians know who he's talking about when he says women receive back their dead by resurrection. Oh, that's the story of the widow at uh, Zarephath with Elijah. Or, and Elisha, he had the same experience. 1 Kings 17 talks about the widow of Zarephath. Her son became very ill and died. And Elijah prayed to the Lord that he would bring him back, and he did. And this widow who was poor and who was hungry and who Elijah had sustained by God's grace received her son back. And Elisha did the same thing. A Shunammite's son was brought back to life. And in each case there was this, this reversal of suffering. I mean, think about it. Children are not supposed to die before their parents. If you've ever heard the order of grief, you know what it is. It is it's terrible to lose a parent. Horrible to lose a spouse. But it's almost unconscionable to lose a child. And so, especially as a woman, you, you realize these, this circumstance of pain, the suffering, was insurmountable. It was very real. And the preacher says, sometimes, sometimes, our sovereign good God reverses the suffering. We've seen the same thing with persecution. Sometimes God's people undergo terrible persecution. Their reputations are maligned. They lose their, their home, their assets. Maybe they're beat up. Maybe they're imprisoned. And yet, sometimes after a short period of time, God seems to turn the tables. Injustice is exposed. A man is restored. A woman is restored. Justice is exacted properly, and pain is alleviated. But God is no less good should He not do so. In fact, remember the old story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? All right? You're going to bow to this idol, or you're going to go in the oven. And with great confidence, they're like, yeah, uh, I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar, that's not going to happen. Our God is going to rescue us. Wow, that's some pretty serious faith, right? Can I tell you what a greater faith is? This statement right here. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Great faith to believe that God can do the unexpected and rescue us. Even a greater faith to say he is still sovereign and he is still good should he not. And so the first little range on the scale he wants to present to us today, because his word is timeless, is, hey, Christians are going to be persecuted. 
Get used to it. It's going to happen. Your persecution may be short-lived, and it might be reversed. Your suffering might be temporary. Don't count on it, but it might be. Look at our second point. There's also suffering that is short, extremely painful, but short. The preacher uses this term resurrection to connect to another group of people. Verse 35, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now, again, immediately, these Jewish Christians knew exactly who he was talking about. We don't see it so much here, but they knew. And he's probably talking about the Maccabeans who had been martyred for their faith just a couple of hundred years earlier. Okay, quick history lesson. Youngest man to conquer the world, Alexander the Great, 29 years old, right? I think it was 333 B.C. He dies without any heirs, and his kingdom is given to how many generals? guys weren't listening in freshman history. Four generals. Two of the dynasties to come out of that was, was the Ptolemaic dynasty in the e- Egypt area and the Seleucid in the Syrian area, the Syrians. Well, what's in the middle of Egypt? Let me do it the other way. So you are looking. Egypt, Egypt, and Syria. What's in the middle? Palestine. You want to talk about being between the hammer and the anvil. And during the first period, the Ptolemies controlled Palestine a lot. And then the Seleucids, the Syrians, controlled Palestine after that. From 198 to 143 BC, Palestine was controlled by the Seleucid dynasty. And one particularly evil Seleucid king was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. It means appearing of the glorious one. I'm pretty sure that he gave himself that name. Well, this guy was so mean and so crazy and so out of his mind that the Jews renamed him Antiochus Epimenes, appearing of the madman, which did make him happy, okay? And his goal was not to tolerate the Jews like other people had done. It was not to work with the Jews. It was to Hellenize the Jews. Uh, In modern-day terms, to make them completely pagan in culture, Greek in culture. And he started what was called a seven-year reign of terror, did some horrible things to try to break the Jews down. Now, normally this works with cultures. You beat them down so hard, they will eventually break. You know this from, you know, uh, again, right after World War II, Soviet Union was able to do so much with the Eastern Bloc nations. You've seen what China can do. You've seen what can be done. Guess what people group you cannot do this with? The Jews. The Jews would sooner die, especially those who had genuine faith. And so Antiochus Epiphanes said, I'm going to break them. He took a pig, he slaughtered it, and he spread the pig's guts all over the Holy of Holies. He then took a statue of a Greek god and put it in the most holy place. And he's like, now... Now I'll break them, right? Not so much. When it talks about tortured here, that's the same word used in the apocryphal book, 2 Maccabees. There's a connection here in these Jews' minds. When they talk about those being tortured, they think, oh, 
the Maccabees, those who suffered under Antiochus Epiphanes, specifically a 90-some-odd-year-old priest named Eleazar and seven brothers of one uh, mother who died because they refused to reject their Lord. And they were tortured. That's what they hear. I want to read to you um, how bad this torture was. To quote Richard Phillips, quote, the brutal tortures are graphically described and include scalping, mutilation, tearing out the tongue, and frying over the flames, most of which took place while they were stretched out over the wheel of a catapult. Again, that word tortured, you know what it literally means? To stretch out over a rack or over a wheel. So they would take a wheel of a catapult, they would lay it down, they would stretch someone over it, and they would beat their abdomen until it destroyed all of their organs and they would die. It's not just saying tortured, like tortured, oh, he was whipped. No, it's tortured until death while being on a rack. Eleazar, the high priest, a 90-year-old man, the seven sons who would not deny their Lord. That's who you're talking about? The preacher is making a connection with this audience. And if they know this, then they also know what these guys said when they refused to deny their Lord. Let me read you a few quotes. One of them said, before death, he looks to his torturer and he says, the king of the universe will raise us up, there's the resurrection, to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. The fourth son said, one cannot choose but to die at the hands of men and to cherish the hope that God gives us of being raised again. But for you, he looks at the torture, there will not be the resurrection to life. And the final son to be murdered brutally said, after enduring their brief pain, now drink of ever-flowing life by virtue of God's covenant. MacArthur explains it well. Here, here is the pinnacle of faith, willing to accept the worst the world has to offer, death, because of trust in the best God has to offer, resurrection. These Jewish Christians knew this. The ones who were reading this, they were the ones that were backing away. They were, they were rejecting the new covenant to go back to the old. And he says, no, hold fast. Draw near, even when it gets tough, just like your forefathers did. This was the kind of faith where suffering and persecution was extremely painful, but it was short. And death brought about relief, because after it, they drank of the ever-flowing life, and they will experience a better resurrection. How is this a better resurrection? Well, think about it. Elijah and Elisha raised up two young boys back to life, but it was to a mortal life. As bad as this torture and death was, they went on to be in the Lord's presence and to experience a future resurrection, a better, an eternal, everlasting resurrection. And so persecution is going to be bad. Sometimes it's reversed. 
Sometimes it's short-lived. But sometimes it goes longer. You know, in a couple of years, Nero would wrap Christians in animal skins and have dogs tear them to death. He would light his gardens with these Christians. Polycarp said it well before he was set to the flames. Four score and six years have I served him. They asked him to deny Christ. How could I possibly then blaspheme my king? I like what Justin Martyr said. He kind of brought it in perspective. He said, remember, brothers and sisters, they can kill us, but they can't hurt us. What if your situation is is not reversed? What if it's not short-lived and you don't die? I mean, that sounds kind of morbid, but, but what if? What if, like Richard Wormbrand, you're tortured for 14 years? What if the better part of your life is one of suffering? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of like, I don't know that I have a category for that. Let's just be honest. Oh, I'm all about being faithful. Yeah, I'm about, you know, standing up tough. I will not deny my Lord. But then there's this thing in the back of my head that says, yeah, but for how long? Don't tell me you didn't think of that. That's our temptation, how long? But remember, genuine faith perseveres to the end. Let's be trained now. Because it may not be short-lived. Look at how the preacher does that in verse 36. Suffering that is long. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. It's almost like he's got this stream of consciousness about all these other situations that he's trying to to sort of anticipate what questions they may have. Yeah, but what about this? Boom, 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 boom. And if you're a Jewish Christian, your response is, yeah, I know that guy. I know that guy. I know who he's talking about here. Okay, preacher, now you're getting in my kitchen, right? Some of you are probably feeling that way right about now, okay? Who is he talking about here? Who is he talking about that was mocked, stoned, sawn in two, went about with goatskins and sheepskins, who lived in holes in there? Who is he talking about? Well, he starts, I think, with Jeremiah. I mean, Jeremiah wasn't called the weeping prophet for no reason, right? He wasn't just a sensitive kind of guy. He was called a weeping prophet because his ministry was a beating. He was not only mocked, maligned, but how do you go your whole ministry without a single convert? I mean, I think at that point, even the denomination is going to get rid of you, right? Doesn't this guy know about tent revivals and altar calls and, and evangelism things? And yet God considered him faithful. Why? Because God does the saving. And yet he wasn't just mocked and maligned. He was flogged. Chapter 37 of Jeremiah says, 
He was thrown into a dungeon for a long period of time. And if that were not enough, just one chapter later, listen to this. They took Jeremiah and they cast him into a cistern at Machilah, Malchilah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in the cistern there was no water but only mud. And Jeremiah sank into the mud. If you want to know what this is, think the first Rambo. Okay? I'm serious. When he's dropped to the second one, I don't remember which one it was, it was 1985, where he's lowered into the mud up to here and you just soak in it. You can't get out because you're tied up. Your blood is being sucked by leeches. There's all sorts of bacteria and infection. There, there are no antibiotics. And you do that until you're just eaten alive or, or simply dehydrate and die. And yet he was released, but his ministry didn't get any easier. And then it talks about some who were stoned. Who do we know who was stoned? Huh? Stephen. See, so that's the connection they're feeling. Stoned. Stephen. Oh, Stephen was a nice guy. What did he do? He was preaching the Word of God. And you start to say, I don't know. I mean, sawn in two, is he making this up? Well, in extra-biblical Jewish writings, it's well attested that the prophet Isaiah was on the run from evil King Manasseh, and he hid in the trunk of a cedar tree. And when they found him, they not only cut down the tree, but as punishment and execution, they put him inside the cut-down trunk, and they killed him by sawing him in two. And then there's the blade. James the Apostle was killed by the sword. And then there's the homelessness, the sheepskins, the ill-treated, the wandering in deserts, the mountains, and caves. And clearly this is thinking of Elijah and Elisha, and, and, and more recently who? John the Baptist who was also put to death by the sword. And yet there's this phrase here that, that should be like chiseled into the stone wall of this Hebrew church that says, men of whom the world was not worthy. Oh my goodness, how true is that? And you're meant to, you're meant to make this connection, men of whom the world did not approve of, but found God's approval. Do you see the connection? Men of who the world could care less about, but God valued. Frankly, if I hear another person tweet out that some athlete or musician is the GOAT, the greatest of all time, I think I'm going to throw up. Just because you can shoot a basket or sing a song, doesn't even remotely put you in the same arena as these guys. And we're meant to give pause and say, okay, if God preserved them by persevering through them, how can we possibly say, no, I'm not willing? These guys weren't great in and of themselves. They didn't have a particular amount of fortitude or courage or strength. 
It was because of the faith that God gave them, the genuine faith that perseveres. And they drew near. They held fast. And so this Hebrew church, by default, us, we're to go, hey, there is no option to quit. And he leaves us with something that, that picks, picks these sheep up and, and dusts them off and then sends them back to church. Surety amid suffering. Look at our fourth point, verse 39. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. At first glance, we get this. And all these didn't quit. So don't you quit. That's kind of how it reads. <laughs> but it's, it's so much deeper than that. Because I think we have to realize when it says these guys did not receive what was promised, they were not only trusting in the promises of God, not only trusting in the Word of God, but they were trusting that God would redeem them. They knew they were sinners. They knew that the wages of that sin was death. And yet they did not have a clear picture as to how God was going to satisfy His just wrath so that He would extend mercy. They did not understand redemption. They had a shadowy understanding with Passover, but they didn't understand the concept that God would become man and set his chin like a flint to the cross, living the life that we could not live, and dying the death we deserved, they didn't understand it. It was shadowy. And yet, even with those, those shadows, they had faith that God would accomplish, even though they didn't understand. How much what? More. How much more for us who are able to look back at the cross and know those words, it is finished. You see, the preacher could have ended it here, but he didn't. He says, I'm not finished yet. Listen to what I'm saying, verse 40, because God provided something better for us. We know the words, it is finished. We know what happened at the cross. We know Jesus is the great Passover lamb. And it actually kind of reads like this, that God, in His divine sovereignty, has actually privileged you, little Hebrew church, privileged us, Metro Bible, to be born at this time under what? The new covenant, so that you might experience this. Because apart from us, meaning Christians and the new covenant, they would have never been saved apart from the cross, and we get to experience it. We get to dwell in it. And so it's like he's saying, and you're thinking of leaving the very new covenant that has saved you, the very new covenant that you know to be sure, the very new covenant that they could only vaguely imagine? He says, don't quit. Here's the point of this chapter. Christians suffer. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. Period. 
But I think it helps to understand the connection. Write down, you don't need to turn there, but write down John 15, 20. Christ is speaking. He says, remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Can I tell you, this is why the Pentecostal health wealth gospel is so damning. It's so heretical. It completely contradicts the words of Christ. I think we need to realize that in the 21st century, things will not continue as they have been. Times have changed. Times are changing. Radically. Quickly. We are no longer a nation influenced by Judeo-Christian values. Oh, sure, the mocking has gone on for a while, but it's only as of late, the last 10 years, that right has become wrong, and wrong is celebrated as right. Diversity, equity, inclusion programs has simply become a pathway to affirming perversion. If you've been to your local PTA meeting lately, you know that to be true. Freedom of speech is disappearing. Big tech is censoring any sort of conversation. Government overreach has become acceptable. Our neighbors to the north, I don't know if you realize that, the last few months have started tracking people's cell phones. Imprisonment is now the remedy for pastors in Canada for the, quote, greater good. We can sit around and cry about this. We can throw ourselves into politics and think that government will be our savior. Or we can be prepared for persecution, keeping the main thing of the gospel on our lips. Listen to the Apostle Peter bring all these concepts together and, and give us marching orders on how to do just that. 1 Peter 1, 6-9. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You say, that's great, Pastor, but my faith is weak. I do believe. Help my what? Unbelief. Does anyone feel that way? I can't do that. And you know what? You're right. You can't. You cannot do that. But the faith that God gives you can. Listen to the words of John Hus. Everyone thinks the Reformation began in 1517 with the uh, 
nailing of the 95 Theses to the door at Wittenberg by Martin Luther. And it did in a sense. But in reality, it started 100 plus years earlier, 200 years earlier, with John Wycliffe and John Huss. John Huss stood against the uh, corruption in the Roman Catholic Church of the day and said only Christ grants forgiveness at the cross. Not indulgences, not the church, only Christ. And as a result of this, in his unwillingness to recant the gospel truth, he was sentenced to be burned at the stake. And sitting in a cold, dark, dank prison cell, he writes to his friends shortly before his death. Quote, O loving Christ, draw me a weakling after thyself. For if thou drawest me not, I cannot follow thee. Grant me a brave spirit that it may be ready. If the flesh is weak, let thy grace prevent. Come in the middle and, and follow. For without thee, I can do nothing. And especially for thy sake, I cannot go to a cruel death. Is this resonating with anyone here? Grant me a ready spirit, a fearless heart, a right faith, a firm hope, and a perfect love that for thy sake I may lay down my life with patience and watch this, joy. With joy? For if thou drawest me not, I cannot follow thee. Well, the end of the story is that he didn't quit. And in fact, he died singing. He died singing. Our Lord tells his children today, persecution is coming. Don't quit. Christ never quit on us.